You are listening to Subro on the Go, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor's Subrogation and Recovery Practice Group, with discussions and perspectives on emerging trends, developments, and best practices. Now let's get started with your hosts, Dave Briscoe and Joe Rich. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Subro on the Go. I'm one of your uh, regular co-hosts, Joe Rich, out of Cozen O'Connor's Miami office. My regular co-host, David Briscoe, is off somewhere chasing a wildfire, um, so he's not going to be joining us today. But we've got two really great guests. Um, this is a topic we've kind of been percolating on for a while. Uh, today's topic is looking north of the border, subrogation in Canada. And Canada is a big territory for purposes of subro. So today we've got um, two of my partners with us. The first is Pam Pangeli from our Toronto office. Pam is the uh, co-office managing partner of our Toronto office. She's been with the firm since 2005. Um, so she's a lifer like me. We also have David Huard from our Montreal office. He is the office managing partner there as well. Um, and I, they're going to explain today for us the differences of litigating and pursuing subrogation and recovery claims in Canada, as well as Quebec, uh, which I guess has its own differences that we'll learn about today. So let's get started. Um, I'm going to throw it open to Pam first. You know, I look at this like, okay, how different can Canada really be from the U.S., Pam? Like, what is, like, when can I start to subrogate? Like, what is the yeah. deal? Right. Okay. Well, I am talking about all of Canada except Quebec. Um, Quebec is basically like its own separate country, which is why David's going to be speaking to that. Um, so in Canada, the insurers, you're in, you, as an insurer, you have the right to subrogate only after your insured is made whole. So that means after they've got their deductible back, after they've got the cost of chasing any recovery back, made whole, um, uninsured loss, then the right to subrogate crystallizes, unless your policy contains wording to the effect that, um, usually policies will say upon making any payment under a policy, the insurer shall have the right to subrogate. So if your policy says that, you have the right to subrogate, or if your insured agrees, you have the right to subrogate, but absent being made whole, um, you need their consent or your policy needs to provide for it. Is that common to have the policy language? Yeah, in fact, this is in business practice. I don't think people really give it much thought. I think insurers just tend to assume um, upon making any payment, they have the right to subrogate. And that's commonly what you'll see in the policy wording. But it's a technical point that unless your policy says that, you don't actually have the right to subrogate until your insured is made whole. So, David, what about Quebec? Because I didn't realize there was another, like Pam said, it's another country within your country. So, so what is the rule in Quebec? So, hi, Joe. Thank you for having me today. So, for first of all, uh, you can't really say it's a country within a country. It's a very sensitive topic. So, we'll keep that one for, <laughs> for another day. But, yes, it, it is very different. Uh, as a result of its uh, French heritage, the province of Quebec is the only province in Canada that has its own uh, uh, a judicial legal system under which uh, civil matters are regulated by a code. This code is called the Quebec Civil Code. And, and, and all the laws and, and, and that apply to uh, subrogation in Quebec are found in this Quebec Civil Code. And yes, yes, subrogation is also uh, a thing in Quebec. 
uh, it is different uh, than, than it is in the rest of Canada in the sense that it's a bit like for you in the U.S. that insurers are, are automatically uh, subrogated the minute they make a, uh, an indemnity payment under a uh, property policy. Okay, so you don't really need the policy language. It kind of, aris it kind of arises by operation of law then. No, no, it's, as I said, so the minute there's a, a coverage grant and an insurer makes a, a payment pursuant to this coverage grant, he will get subrogation right. Then obviously some, in, in some instances, people will, will argue, well, there wasn't any coverages, so you should not have, have made that payment, therefore you're not subrogated. So uh, away insurers, you know, make sure they're properly protected, they will include a conventional subrogation uh, assignment rights in their releases with their uh, own insured. So that way they're, they're covered both ways, both by law and under the uh, final release with the insured. Well, that makes sense. So let's, so let's say we have the subro right. What happens next? Like who gets to steer the ship for a subro claim? Well, and, and that's, that's a great question. In fact, I think it's important to, to distinguish the right to subrogate means the right to start the action in anywhere in Canada if you make a payment under a policy regardless of whether your insured is made whole they have um, a subrogated interest in that if the insured um, is paid back uh, the insurer has a right to you know, potentially recoup a portion of what they've paid out under their policy um, but it's the right to start that action to, to sort of take control of the recovery proceedings and so th this ties into the issue of control, the right to subrogate, the right to control the action um, in, in most of Canada only arises when the insured is made whole. So um, that is why, uh, now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's okay, uh, it's okay. So <laughs> is that, David, is that similar in Quebec as well that um, the control like has to wait until the insured is made whole or is it different there for you guys? It, it is very different because again, uh, here the, the insurers, they sue in their own name. They don't, they don't sue in, in the name of their insured. So the minute they make a payment, an indemnity payment under uh, an insurance policy, they have several rights and they can do whatever they want with them. So if, if they want to sue, they can, and it's their claim, they do whatever they want with it. Um, then the insured may have uh, an uninsured loss, for instance, a deductible. That claim that for, for the uninsured loss belong to the insured. The insured has full control over this, this claim and it's up to the insured to do whatever they want with it. In many instances, uh, the insurer and the insured will team up and you know, uh, act, you know, collaborate to uh, pursue uh, recovery. But if the insured does not do anything about its deductible, the, the insurer, you know, steer the ship and, and do whatever they want with their claim. And Pam, is that is that how it is in the rest of Canada or does it operate differently? If only, because let me tell you, it would solve a lot of problems. So <laughs> in the rest of Canada, um, it's actually, so there can only be one action. It has to be uh, including both the insured and uninsured loss and the action has to be brought in the name of your insured. So this is why the issue of control is um, 
such a potentially contentious issue. Again, the insured has the right of control unless your policy provides otherwise or unless you contract as the insurer for the right of control. So your insured may have uh, like a soft BI claim and the insurer may have paid out, you know, what we call like a hard property loss claim with solid numbers. The, the BI claim is a little bit up in the air. And yet, as long as there's some uninsured loss, it would be the insured who has the right to control, the right to select counsel, the right to decide when and how much to settle for, and um, the, you know how much to settle for can be a, a key issue depending on how the recovery is going to be split. So let me ask you: I don't want to, I don't want to jump too far ahead because I'm going to ask you guys about statute of limitations and sort of the litigation differences, but. How does this, what you're explaining, Pam, play into delays in subrogating claims? Because it sounds like you sort of have to wait until the insured is ready to go in some instances. Well, it is really important to start this discussion with the insured as soon as possible. I mean, these are issues that will have to be negotiated. So um, you have to, first of all, look at what your policy provides. Does it expressly contract for the right of control? To date, I've only seen one policy that has ever done that. You need to actually use express language. It's not just enough to say we have the right to separate. You have to say we have the right to control litigation. And you can't even do it in a proof of loss. In Canada, that's just considered a receipt. So does it impact time, timeliness of your action and, and lead to delays? Well, you know, certainly it's not something you want to put off to the last minute. Um, if, that makes if you're sense. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So let me ask you then... So now we've talked about how the suburb right arises and sort of some of the different nuances between Canada and Quebec. But what happens when you start litigation? I mean, what are some of the fundamental differences? I mean, in the U.S., you know, where I practice in state or federal courts here, you know, we're usually given a timeline, a discovery schedule. And, you know, post-COVID, I will say, Things are moving faster than I think they ever have. And that is because we've had a backlog. But it's very much different for you guys, right? <laughs> uh, it, Canada, you, nobody wants say, to talk. <laughs> it's okay. Go ahead. Well, there is definitely, compared to the U.S., I'd say we have an institutionalized culture of delay. I, I mean, I tell people litigation here, um, it can be on average, four to six years. And there are some cases it can take 10 years or more to get to trial, I, I'm not kidding. Um, we do not have drop dead dates to enforce um, productions and things like that. Things can really drag on. It's often a surprise for people um, who are, are new to the process, just how long things can drag out. Now, now again, I can't speak for Quebec, but maybe David, um, what's your perspective? Oh well, it, it is. It is. Is it a bit? Well, I, I would say it's a. It, it's much faster uh, litigating in the province of Quebec for for the simple reason that the law provides that you have to set down your action for trial within six months. That is extremely fast. Just to give you an idea, in the rest of Canada where I also practice, for instance, in Ontario, that deadline is five years. So you have six months versus five years. So obviously makes a huge difference. Obviously, in, in many instances, though, this, this six months 
uh, deadline is 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 not realistic. So so what parties end up doing, they they end up like seeking extension after extensions after extension, which is normal because you know considering the number of parties that have to be examined, undertakings and stuff like that. But but yes, no. All in all, though, it, it is much faster uh, litigating in the province of Quebec. But it sounds like what Pam is explaining is a real delay, <laughs> because what we think of as delays here, it's usually like what you're explaining, like, hey, we've got a six to 12 month calendar to get everything done and we need a couple extra months. But Pam is speaking in terms of years, which is, I think, very much fundamentally different than stateside practice. It's and just so you understand, there's a there's a rule in Ontario, for example, that if you are requested to extend the time frame as counsel, you are under professional obligation to grant reasonable requests for extensions for time without seeking client consent. So the lawyer does not need to go to the client and ask. You are required by our rules of professional conduct to grant that extension so long as it's reasonable and of course that's a big you know question mark what is reasonable yeah that, that's an interesting difference because like florida where i practice if you're in state court and you want to move a trial date and here it's the trial dates determine the rest of your schedule you have to actually file a consent form where the client signs it and they agree to move the trial date so that's an interesting difference so what about actually when you're litigating the cases like what type of discovery are you guys afforded? Like, do you even get discovery or is it very, very limited? And it sounds like I'm going to get two different answers, but Pam, we'll start with you again. You know, cause in, in the, in the U S like if, if, if you're in state court in Florida, for instance, where I practice, you get unlimited depositions, unlimited depositions of non-parties or parties. There's no time limit in state court. It's just a reasonableness requirement. And I've been in depositions that have lasted for days in, in federal court, it's much different. You have, you know, you have an hour limit, basically a day to get the deposition done. And there's a proportionality standard in federal courts in the U.S. that, you know, you can be limited in the number of depositions and the scope of discovery based on the type of case. So it's, it's a lot different. But what do you guys deal with up north? Wow. So, well, here we don't even call them depositions. They're discoveries or questioning, depending on the province. But uh, so just as a brief our production process in a nutshell. First, every party is under a positive obligation to produce for the other side all relevant documents up front. So you provide it either in a list form or an affidavit, depending on the province. You, as counsel and your client, have to identify the relevant documents, produce them, and if uh, it lists them, and if you're claiming privilege over some of them, you, you, know, you identify what you're claiming privilege over. So after that document production takes place, um, then you would proceed to examinations for discoveries, your version of questioning or interrogatories. Um, now, in Alberta, it's somewhat similar. There's no restriction on how many parties can be examined, and it can you know, go on for days. But in most provinces, you are only entitled to examine one representative per each side adverse and interest so you would produce the person with best knowledge uh, from the plaintiff and the other side would produce the person from best knowledge at their company is defended um, in Ontario you would only have seven hours to question them unless parties agree otherwise and so what happens if the person doesn't know the answer to the question you're asking 
Well, you can't just go and ask the person who knows. What you actually do is put forward what's called undertaking. So you would ask the lawyer for the other side, please undertake to tell me what this person knows. Or if they don't have the document, please undertake to find that document, provide it. So everything that's not in the direct knowledge of that witness is then filtered through the lawyer on the other side and it comes back to you some months later um, through this answering undertakings process. So as you can imagine, the information is, is then, you know, being filtered through counsel. There's months and months that go by while you're waiting for undertakings to be answered. And um, at least in Ontario, until that process is finalized, you can't even set the action down for a trial. And it can take, well, yeah, it can take a year or more sometimes for all those undertakings to be answered. So that's, <laughs> so that's it's most a very of different process than yeah. what we're used to in terms of how we take testimony in a stateside case. David, is that generally the same method in, in Quebec or completely different? different. It, it could not be more, be more different in, in the province of Quebec here. I, I, we, we, we say that litigation is front loaded in the sense that you, you file your action, but for each allegation in your action, you must refer to what evidence you are relying and, the, and these, these exhibits must be attached to your, um, to your action. So that way, when a defendant receives a lawsuit, not only he knows what's alleged against him, but he also knows what's the evidence relied upon by the plaintiff. Whereas in, in the province of Ontario and the rest of Canada, they just get received months and months later this, this affidavit of documents that, you know, it's just everything that is relevant. Here, it's everything that supports the allegation, much different. Then then once you, you, you've served your, your, your lawsuit with, with the exhibits, then next step, parties agree on a timetable and you can pretty much examine as many witnesses as you want. If, if there are, you know, proper witnesses that have relevant knowledge of the uh, uh, issues, you'll be, you'll be entitled to examine them. Obviously parties, you know, they gotta try to be reasonable at the same time. And, and, and so, one way uh, defense counsel have found to get around the, this, this lack of um, document production is that before the examination, they will serve you what, with what they call now pre uh, request for pre-undertaking. So essentially, they, they send you this, this shopping list of all the documents they want to see before they get to examine uh, your witness, but it's up, to, it's up to them to make the request. And if they don't ask for it, well, tough luck, right? So that's that's how they work. It's work. And, and similarly to the rest of Canada, then you get to the examination. And during the course of that examination, uh, witnesses will also give uh, a number of, of undertakings that needs uh, to be uh, answered uh, subsequently by, 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 uh, by them and, and through their lawyers. So, wow, so two very, very different processes between Quebec and, like, Ontario, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. One other quick point to note, um, objections. As I understand it, in the U.S., you can't um, refuse to answer a question just because you don't like it, but in, in most of, <laughs> most there's, of there's Canada... Two, there's two reasons. You can... I mean, the only two basic reasons you can instruct a witness not to answer is for uh, privilege material, you know, attorney-client communications, or um, really if it's if it's truly 
harassing, right? But though that's that's very limited in application. See, that would be so nice because here you can object to questions on the grounds of relevance. So it becomes a strategic play that if you're in a good line of questioning and the witness is giving you answers that are helpful, much to the other side's dismay, they can interrupt and say objection relevance. And then the only way to deal with that is to bring a motion before the court, which can take months to schedule, where you put the transcript before the court and ask that the witness be compelled to answer the question, which will, of course, then come from the lawyer, you know, filtered <laughs> at a later date, unless you get <laughs> filtered a specific order. Yeah, so, so. We're, so, so let me, let's just round this out really quickly. If you guys can just very quickly, what are the differences with statute of limitations? Because I want our listeners to have some kind of frame of reference for how different it is in Canada for statute of limitations, because it's, it's something we always harp on and kind of part of our mantra is to keep track of deadlines and when you can file actions. So, you know, for instance, in Florida where I practice, you can bring a civil case for tort damages within four years of the date of the event. Um, we have some statutes of repose that limit retroactively bringing products claims. But what about in Canada? What what are the, what do they look like very quickly? So in uh, it varies by province. Generally speaking, there is what what you call a statute of repose. We'd call an ultimate limitation period. So, ten to fifteen years from the date of the negligent act depending on the province, you would be barred from bringing a claim regardless of whether your damages have actually occurred. And then in most provinces, there's a presumptive limitation period that is like usually two years. It can be up to six years, depending on the province from the date of loss, which can be extended depending on when you discover all the facts giving rise to your claim. And David, any difference in Quebec? Obviously. <laughs> so no statute of <laughs> yeah, repose. Yeah, of course, right? <laughs> yeah. So no no statute of repose or, or ultimate limitation. So if there's this this installer that this this job, you know, fifty years ago and turns out it was it was negligent, you can still go after him if, if the loss occurred within uh, the last three years, which is the limitation here. Uh, so you can uh, bring your action within uh, three years of the loss. Uh, okay. And you cannot vary this this three years by contract, and uh, th there are obviously some some small exceptions to that rule. For instance, if you want to go after a municipality, um, this this delay I think is sixty days or something like that, very short. But but otherwise, you know, in, in ninety nine percent of the cases, it's it's three years from the date of the loss. Okay, well, I think that that's helpful to kind of give those those listening to the podcast an idea of of the time frames up north i want to thank you pam and david for joining me today and kind of giving us a glimpse of what it's like to subrogate cases up in canada and for those of you listening um you can find pam and david's contact information on our website um and if you ever have any questions i'm sure that they would be happy to answer them and guys i just want to thank you again for joining us and sharing uh giving us a little bit of insight of what it's like with delays up in Canada, Pam. <laughs> thank you. It's been fun. Thanks. Thanks for having us. I really appreciate right, it. Guys. Thank you so much.